Take it to a cause, good days to you, I'll tell Of how the good old union is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boy? Welcome, and thanks for all for coming. Um, welcome to our report back on the National Policy Forum that happened this weekend. We'll be discussing what made it through, what was left out, and I should start by saying this call is hosted by Arise, supported by Momentum, the Labour Assembly Against Austerity, the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy and Labour Hub. So it's great to have different organisations across the Labour left together for this call. So to introduce myself, I'm Kate Dove, one of Momentum's co-chairs, and I'll be chairing this evening. It'll be my pleasure to introduce a range of brilliant speakers and NPF reps who've attended the meetings in Nottingham at the weekend. But first, I want to start with a brief introduction as to what's happened at the NPF. Well, so going in, we launched a campaign asking reps to stand up for real Labour values. That came in the context where every section of the Labour movement, from the left unions to our elected mayors, was crying out for Keir Starmer's shameful decision to keep the Tories' heinous two-tile cap. Elsewhere, we were campaigning on free school meals, a campaign also run by the Mirror, and our comrades in the NEU against NHS privatisation and for public ownership funded by wealth taxes. As many comrades will have seen, the leadership again adopted a no-compromise fiscal conservative position, which made it impossible to win the transformative change we need. In the process, they alienated delegates from all sides and multiple trade unions, with Unite refusing to back the final document. But we still won some significant concessions through determined organising, and that's what we're going to hear about tonight. Over the course of the call, which will last just over an hour, you'll hear reports from the NEC and NPF reps on the wins and losses of the NPF, and also hear from key figures across the left on what that means for us going forward. So tonight, joining us are NEC Rep Momentum Vice Chair Mish Rahman, NEC Rep Jess Barnett, Disability Labour Rep Jonathan Farr, Labour activists from across the movements we've got as well, John McDonnell, uh, Rachel Garnham, Jack Bellingham, and former director of the Labour Party policy um, under Jeremy Corbyn, Andrew Fisher. And a man, of course, who needs an introduction, John, right at the end, who I think is going to be joining us. So it's all thrilled to have you here. Um, so I know you're waiting to hear from the first speaker. So just bear with me. This is uh, Rachel Garnham. Rachel is here to talk about her time as a delegate. She's a co-chair for Campaign for Labour Party Democracy and NPF for the Eastern Region. Over to you, Rachel, to tell us how you found this weekend. Thanks, Kate. And thanks to... Um, oh everyone for um, coming together to organise this meeting. It's really important that our, you know, the people we've elected get the chance to report back. That may be uh, easier said than done because of the, the code of conduct, so do bear with us. Um, so I represent um, Eastern Region CLPs on the National Policy Forum. I was first elected in 2015 um, uh, and then after a brief time off, I was re-elected in 2022. So I've been following this cycle of policy discussion all the way through on a variety of policy commissions, most recently on public services that work from the start, covering NHS, public health, social care and education. Um, I wanted to give a, a bit of background to as to what we were, were up to this weekend, basically, so you can judge the outcomes in that context. Um, so the National Policy Forum process under Blair was specifically designed to take key policy decisions out of annual conference, where 50% of the votes are held by affiliates, mostly trade unions, and 50% by CLP delegates. So the National Policy Forum, by contrast, includes very large numbers of votes for the Parliamentary Labour Party, Shadow Cabinet and local government, which significantly waters down the influence of trade unions and grassroots members. So what we were met in Nottingham about was a, a final stage National Policy Forum meeting, which is the end of four years of consultation. Um, and for, you know, the previous um, annual conference discussions and everything all is supposed to be in the pot for that discussion. Um, and there hasn't been a final stage National Policy Forum since 2014 in Milton Keynes. 
Um, so it was it was a big deal. You know, we were trying to fight for all the policy positions that have been agreed by annual conference over the last you know five or six years. Um, a bit of an ask. Um, so this time round as well, the joint policy committee and the national executive committee had agreed on a process for the MPF meeting that involved a higher threshold for well-supported amendments to make it to annual conference as minority positions. So it was always going to be difficult for the left to have influence. However, if all the unions were unhappy, they could take is their issues to annual conference where their, their influence is greater. Hence, uh, negotiations between the leadership and the unions were always going to be at the heart of the weekend. And they were. And I'm afraid I can't report the outcome of those because I don't know it. Um, and we will have to, to wait and see exactly what was agreed um, when it's published. So, but from, from public commentary, it's safe to say that some unions do not appear happy, but it was encouraging to see them putting up a fight. Um, I think further context is the rapid lurch to the right on policy that um, Kate mentioned in the introduction. Um, new, new depths plumbed on a weekly basis um, and the shadow treasuries red lines on not including new spending commitments meant the MPF appeared a bit powerless to make a difference on some things, although, of course, it could have done if it, the political will was there by the majority of delegates. And the political will there was was there from some of us, but not from others. Um, so, I mean, the hypocrisy of those so-called red lines should not go unnoted because there's always money for increased military spending, for Tory spending commitments. And where reps argued for progressive changes to tax policy, such as equalising capital gains tax and income tax or increasing income tax for the top 5% of earners, as promised by Keir Starmer in his leadership election, we were unfortunately unsuccessful. Um, so, as I say, it's not it's not very easy to give a detailed report. In fact, it's, it's just not possible, <laughs> given the confidential nature of the meeting, a very strict code of conduct and the record of the current leadership in, in disciplining left wingers. Um, however, reports framed in general terms are permitted. Um, and what I would say is that in difficult circumstances, left comrades used the very limited platform to ensure that the policy programme came out somewhat better than it went in, um, if it's still a long way from where it needs to be. Um, I personally made the case to ministers on childcare, on housing, on abortion rights, on Palestine, on wealth taxes, on academisation of schools, on abolishing Ofsted, and on the marketization of education in the state of our universities. Every CLP rep did the same. So we did make our presence felt. Um, we drew on contributions from grassroots members and advocated policies overwhelmingly endorsed by our supposedly sovereign Labour Party conference. And I'm sure other others will give a bit more detail, but do forgive us um, if we, we're a little cautious. Um, there is a lot more to say, but there's lot, not a lot more time. There's a lot of speakers. So I'm going to conclude just by saying that the... I think the National Policy Forum meeting this weekend really demonstrates that the, the battle for the future of the Labour Party is ongoing. The battle for what Labour will do in government is very much a live one. Um, this is just one forum where that fight was playing out and the next will be annual women's conference, immediately followed by annual conference. Um, left CLP reps and left unions worked really well together and we need to be ready for further fights. So. Um, you know, it's absolutely clear that the country needs a better opposition to this horrendous government who is doing so much harm and is not facing the opposition it needs. Um, and in the longer term, we need an anti-austerity Labour government who will save our public services and reduce inequalities. So that fight for an anti-austerity Labour Party is absolutely critical. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that later on. Um, and the fight goes on. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rachel, um, and so much so much for your hard work over the weekend. Um, that was a really important uh, report back. Um, and you can read, share and support the model motions um, with the link in the chat. Um, so next up, we have Jonathan Farr. Jonathan sits on the on the Executive Committee of Disability Labour and is also the LGBTQ plus and Dis disability officer for Mid Bedfordshire CLP. He'll be talking to us about the array of commitments on disability justice that were secured, particularly Labour's adoption of the social model for disability, thanks to the work of Jonathan and, of course, Ellen Morrison, a brilliant socialist and NEC disabled members rep. So without further ado, Jonathan, I'll hand it over to you. 
Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here to speak this evening, uh, especially in what is Disability Pride Month, which is what my background is for those of you who may not know. As Rachel said, you know, we went into this process very much with our hands tied on what we could actually achieve. And that was made very clear from the start that anything involved with the, uh, involving spending commitments just wasn't going to ride. Um, Disability Labour and working with Ellen had already taken that into account with some of our asks and I'm pleased that actually from the view of disabled people, whereas we could have submitted 200 amendments to improve things uh, in the document in general, we concentrated between us on 10 areas and we've got some significant commitments. Um, if we look at the access to work scheme, uh, the party is committed to actually introducing in practice awards so uh, in principal awards sorry so that people who are actually looking for work can get an award rather than having to wait until you're in work with commitments on ensuring that there are reasonable timescales in place for those decisions to be made so that unlike currently thanks to the Tory underfunding you you, know, you can wait a long time uh, we've got commitments on accessible transport um, there was no mention of um, accessibility in the transport fit for the 21st century section. Um, we've now actually got that in there. Um, and in fact, yeah, it's it's a commitment to accessible transport, um, which is important because obviously for disabled people, they're shut out from transport in lots of areas, particularly on rail and uh, metro systems and obviously we know the current campaigning about ticket office uh, closures as has been mentioned we've got a commitment um, to the social model um, originally the, the wording was to the language of the social model which as you all know means nothing that just means talking about you know, words not actions um, but also a commitment to a co-production of policy um, across government departments and that's um, obviously important because we need to make sure that the voices of disabled people are actually at the heart of the decisions that affect them. Um, on housing, there was nothing in the original document about accessible housing standards at all. Um, we've now got a commitment on uh, in there on accessible housing standards and a commitment to co-design, which obviously reflects um, the the you know, the principles of co-production the um united nations convention for the rights of disabled persons is um a commitment that should be reflected across government um on social security we've managed to get um again a commitment on co-production of, of policy uh, reform of the current um, assessment system for disability benefits um actually got them to mention legacy benefits because all of the uh, uh submissions that were being made kept talking about universal credit and we wanted to ensure that people on legacy benefits were recognized because um we don't want the situation we had during covid there is a firm commitment to remove punitive the punitive sanctions um system um and also there is a commitment in there to ensure that there is in-person facilities available for people who are um, lacking in uh, IT skills or you know, availability. And in other areas, others have, see, uh, have achieved commitments on mental health care, independent living, um, workplace mental and physical um, safety and health, um, mental health at universities, women's health, uh, SEN uh, send education uh, importantly for for obviously for women uh, menopause in the workplace including flexible working and menopause leave uh, there's disability disability pay gap reporting um, there's commitments uh, on ensuring that employers provide reasonable adjustments in a timely manner uh, there's commitment to a social care national co uh, care service with users actually and their wishes at the heart of that um, yeah, it's based based on actually user choice. Um, so although we haven't won some of the big arguments, you know, things like the, as we mentioned, the two, two child cap 
benefits caps um, and so on. Yeah, there are some wins in there. You know, we have actually had an influence. And I think it's fair to say that, certainly speaking for myself, managed to have some very positive discussions with um, some of the Shadow Cabinet and their teams on disabled rights. Um, I felt like for the first time in quite a while, they've actually been, yeah, we've actually been listened to on when it comes to disabled rights, rather than just getting lip service. But obviously now we have to make sure that all these commitments are actually put into action when we get a Labour government. So thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, it's so important to have kind of your informed take on disability rights, um, especially, as you said, during Pride Month, um, and that we can co-produce policy in collaboration with disabled people. Um, and so, so meaningful, these, these concessions that you've won. Um, I'm just going to have a quick look at the Q&A and take a few questions um, from the participants watching so that the speakers going forward can maybe touch on these. Um, so we had Vince on Zoom, who said, Hi from Glasgow. Was there any discussions between the unions and the CLP lefts? And if so, uh, sorry, if not, are there any plans to set up such dialogue in future? Um, we had, And we also had Russell on Zoom saying, How many NPF members attended? Um, so that we know how much 35% was to achieve a minority position. Um, so the speakers could kind of um, bear that in mind and hopefully answer those. Um, and I'll be picking them up as we go along. Um, so make sure to use the Q&A box at the bottom. Uh, up next is Mish Rahman. Mish is our Vice Chair of Momentum um, and a member of Labour's NEC. Mish is an inspirational and tireless campaigner for socialism, who's led on campaigns such as Stand Up to Racism. He's also stood to be selected as Labour MP for Wolverhampton West, but was shamefully blocked from the long list just a week ago. He was a key left-wing figure at the MPF this weekend, so over to you, Mish. Thank you so much, Kate, and it's lovely to be here uh, this evening with uh, comrades uh, to report back from the MPF. As Kate mentioned, as you're aware, last week I was blocked from a long list to be the parliamentary candidate for Wolverhampton West, and that despite having the support of seven trade unions and affiliates, as well as of hundreds of members, and that too because of how I voted on the NEC. So it was great this weekend to come face-to-face -face with the people who blocked me and see some of them squirm uncomfortably when coming face-to-face. -face. It was also nice to receive solidarity from places least expected as well. Now, the National Policy Forum, as Rachel Garnham explained, was meant to be an opportunity for members and delegates to have a say on Labour policy and help shape the direction of where we are going in specific to the economy, the environment, health, education, housing, transport, work, equality, justice and international issues. And at the last election, we were talking about making Britain a fairer place, but this time it's about making Britain better. Well, look, we know that our chances of success going into the MPF was always going to be marginal, but equipped with radical ideas and a fabulous socialist delegation of left MPF members and trade unions, we knew that there would be opportunities for us to input some transformative ideas into policy. And all this was despite and hindered uh, by the leadership self-imposed policy of no repeals of Tory laws and then their fiscal discipline stroke conservatism as well as a plan to avoid making any commitments which would require the front bench to commit to any spending beyond the budget gained from abolishing the non-DOM ta uh, status tax that defines that this leadership was on full display. Now we know that we're dealing with a macho, culty, thin-skinned, control freak leadership. But this became even more evident when right from the off, every shadow minister told us the same. There's nothing with spending commitments. So amendments supported by Momentum and the wider left, as well as our friends in the trade unions, these were uh, proposals such as uh, a 15-hour pound an hour minimum wage, universal free school meals, and democratic public ownership. These were all rejected out of hand. Obviously, as many of us believe that Labour is meant to be a moral crusade or is nothing, but furthermore, when the leadership also refuses to commit to abolishing heinous Tory policies such as a two-child limit, 
and anti-protest laws, meaning that undemocratic measures could be kept in place under a Labour government. This should hit the very soul of the Labour movement. The democratic process seemed really over before it began in many ways, so uh, with many of these policies already ruled out. So popular policies, and these are policies that are desperately needed to tackle the huge crises that we're facing. These are policies that include public ownership, mass council house building and others. But when they say that they're uncosted, comrades, let me tell you, they're not. These are effective and affordable policies, and we could fund them easily by implementing wealth taxes on the richest in our society, which is itself another highly popular policy. So just like austerity was a political choice, it's also a political choice not to spend this money. So this is something that the leadership will need to take on their shoulders. But despite these deeply disappointing positions, which do not represent mainstream opinion within the party or within the public, we still saw some important wins. Uh, I myself brought amendments to provide universal free school meals for all primary school children. Uh, also want to take water into public ownership to end privatisation of the NHS and to put some more meat on the bones of the GB energy policy. But despite not being able to take water into public ownership or pass free school meals uh, or to get language that ends the privatisation of the NHS, uh, I did manage to get some language agreed in terms of defining the scale of GB energy and its ambition, which is a positive. Now, other comrades were able to celebrate more small but significant wins, which included modernising the Gender Reform, the Gender Recognition Act, uh, improving disability rights, and standing in solidarity with countries in the global south. Thanks for that, Mish. Uh, much appreciated. And solidarity again. You deserved a chance to stand in front of members in Wolverhampton. It was an absolute disgrace. Um, so we've got a few more questions in for speakers. Um, we had George on Zoom, um, George McManus from Beverly. In 2014, the big issue was austerity-based economic policy. Is it fair to say that we're back to where we were in 2014 as far as austerity is concerned? And we also have, where do things, where things don't cost money, why don't they do it? The fiscal rule does not apply here. So if our speakers could bear that in mind. Um, before we move on as well, I'll just say that over 300 people are joining us live, including from Hull, from Gateshead, which is the best part, um, but I'm biased. Taunton, London, Coventry, Sheffield, North Wales, Wolverhampton, Colchester, Southend, Glasgow, Stockport, Westcliff, and Portugal. Um, so, lovely to have you all here. Um, up next is Jess Barnard. Um, Jess is the former uh, chair of Young Labour and is now one of the left reps on the NEC. Jess, you managed to extract a concession or two, so tell us about your time in Nottingham. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for the introduction. Um, and as always, thanks for the to the team behind the scenes who uh, you know organise these spaces for us. I've seen like lots of appreciation uh, for this report back. So yeah, thanks as always to the to the organisers. Um, yeah, I mean. As you've already heard, unfortunately, this isn't and wasn't ever going to be a report where we're kind of celebrating huge wins um, just because of the, you know, the kind of current political climate that we're in. And, you know, the weekend was dominated by and I think the headline that we kind of took from it, you know, kids big headline was, uh, you know, fiscal rules, as you've probably already seen reported. So it wasn't really a surprise, I think to us um but it was definitely experience um from a perspective of someone whose first mpf it was as well um you know and also just want to thank all the hard work of of the members um if you know if you were part of any of the kind of discussions leading up to the to this conference and you've kept the pressure up uh you know without the work of socialists doing all of that and having those conversations and keeping these issues alive i think it would have been significantly worse and thanks to all my colleagues um across the weekend who just kept the pressure up um i wanted to talk specifically about a couple of a couple of key issues so uh on on housing which was an area i I was focusing on um it has already been reported elsewhere you know there was some progress made on recognizing uh the failure of the private rental sector um and some commitments were won in terms of uh you know the private renters charter uh co-production and putting social and genuinely affordable homes at the heart of plans to fix the housing crisis but as you've already heard the proposals failed to to commit to any kind of meaningful figure um 
of of social and council homes to be to be developed under the next Labour government, and it did fail to make uh, spending commitments on on housing. So those are kind of things we were looking for kind of clear commitments on. And, and I, you know, I, I did raise that a number of times um, in terms of housing policy, you know, it didn't commit to scrapping uh, outright Thatcher's uh, policy of, of right to buy um, or to introduce rent controls uh, or to, uh, to ad- address the Tory uh, adopted affordable housing definition, which is currently at 80% of market rate, which is completely unaffordable to millions of people and, and most people in, in the country. So over the weekend, I did put forward the importance of funding to be made available to address the housing crisis. It is a top priority for millions of people in the country, and particularly renters who are spending, you know, between a third, sometimes even more than half of their income now on rent. Uh, And so bringing down rents and investing in building social homes in the very early years of a Labour government is going to be absolutely essential if we want to lift people out of poverty and uh, end the housing insecurity that is that is blighting millions of people and, and stop the billions of pounds that's being used to kind of subsidise private landlords every year. So that was a really key uh, key issue that we were focusing on this weekend. Uh, on, on schools and education, there were a number of changes that were won, including uh, ending tax breaks for uh, private schools um, and just, you know, discussions around how those funds will be used to to recruit new teachers and mental health professionals, really th- you know, things that were really brilliant to see. Um, we we did push for the introduction of free school meals despite um which wasn't wasn't taken up despite the fact that both london and wales have done incredible incredible work in the face of uh, tory austerity to to roll those out um so that was a really a real shame and i think um in my view a missed a missed opportunity to support an incredibly popular policy um and one that we know that our members want to see a labor government championing and implementing in the next labor government uh, there's quite a lot more to cover, and I, you know, I know there's a uh, there's some more speakers who are going to be talking about lots of the lots of issues that came up. Um, but I want to just spend the time I have left just to address one of the issues uh, it's been um, spoken about on social media and an article which has kind of been uh, been released by uh, Annalise Dodd since, um, which is around the the kind of policy rollbacks around the equalities uh, section, specifically around trans people, uh, which is really really concerning. Um, you know the the commitments from the Labour Party do fail uh, to commit to a, a demedicalised self ID process, and it does fail to appropriately acknowledge and address the scale of transphobia. That we're seeing and that we want Labour to address um, and commit to addressing. We were able to secure some some changes, but I think it's really clear that this is not a moment where it's you know kind of cause for celebration. Um, and there weren't kind of you know huge vast improvements that that we wanted to see. So things like you know getting recognition that uh, the GRA process is humiliating, intrusive, and outdated. Obviously, that's something that we're glad has been recognised, but you know it does feel like a very first step. Uh, and winning some commitments on uh, inclusivity and healthcare, and on the commitment to the Labour 2010 Equality Act. Um, and the commitment on, to introduce, you know, a new process uh, as referenced in Annalise's article. Um, but it does fall far short of the commitments that we need to see. Um, reflecting on that piece specifically as well, the article that's been released uh, is, although it's not unexpected, I think that this is a very good example of why the NPF policy, you know, sometimes falls, falls short and how badly we need the Labour Party to be much clearer in its commitments uh, to marginalised communities, specifically, you know, in this instance, to trans people. Um, the reference to kind of far right dog dog whistles in that article are absolutely shocking and, you know, I think reflects the the work that we have to do um you know at today's nec meeting and a number of us myself included uh, did did challenge Annalise directly on this um but i think that this is an example where it's it shows just how urgent it is that, that us as a movement you know trans allies uh the lgbt community and you know everyone in the labor movement puts the pressure on the party to step up to meet with trans people and to listen to them and to clearly commit to the policy the policies that they that we need to see so yeah you know we can expect 
the pressure on labor to ramp up from all angles and particularly from a lot of interest in people who kind of don't want to see the the socialist policies that we want to see and we probably continue to see a, a bit of a reluctance to to make those commitments from uh, the labor front bench for, from our side um, particularly where you know there is going to be a cost associated but we have to stand really firm you know we know that the policies that we're pushing for are overwhelmingly popular but most importantly they're absolutely necessary and we can't just sit around and you know let this happen we need to keep up the fight to winning these arguments and winning these commitments because the Tories have created crisis after crisis uh, after 13 years in government so you know the left working together with our union colleagues uh, and continuing to push these policies and organizing at every level is absolutely essential if we are going to see a labor government that's transformative thanks so much for that jess um really really appreciate it and obviously you know we want to say that we stand with them shoulder to shoulder with our trans and non-binary um comrades so, you know, as you say, we've made progress, but there is certainly a lot further to go. Um, the next speaker we have is um, Andrew Fisher, um, who is what well, was a key figure in Labour policymaking during Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and helped write the 2017 and 2019 election manifestos. Um, so, Andrew, could you tell us a bit more about your time as director of policy um, and what the MPF process was like during that time? Um, and possibly like reflections from um, this weekend's outcomes. Thanks. Um, well, thanks a lot, Kate. And um, well done to Arise, to Momentum, Labour Hub, CLPD and all the others for organising tonight's event as well. And well done as well to all the MPF reps. Any criticism I've got of it definitely doesn't reflect on the MPF reps you've heard from. It might reflect on some of the other ones that aren't here that are perhaps in a different political space than the ones you've heard from already. But I mean, when I worked for the Labour Party and was director of policy, um, we'd never got to the end of the MPF process because, as you recall, we had two snap elections, one in 2017 after just two years and one another, another one just two years after that. So, in effect, we never really went through this process uh, to the same degree. Um, I mean, I think what I th- what I think is quite interesting is how not just kind of left-wing policies have kind of been rejected, but quite modest I mean, I wouldn't even call them social democratic, kind of quite middle of the road policies have been ruled out. So if you take universal free school meals, that's a policy being rolled out by the Welsh Labour government in Wales, by the SNP government with the backing of Scottish Labour. That's being rolled out, if you're lucky enough to be in London and have kids, as I do, by Sadiq Khan from September. Um, They've rejected rent controls. That's something backed by Andy Burnham, who was in the cabinets of Blair and Brown. Um, It's backed by Marvin Rees. It's backed by Sadiq Khan. Um, they've rejected scrapping the two child limit that their own current shadow secretary of state for work and pensions says is heinous that Keir Starmer said he would scrap when he stood for leader that Angela Rayner has spoken out against. Um, the explicit support for the triple lock wasn't there. It's dependent on whether the Tories do it as well. Now, you know, that's been Labour policy for a long time to support that um, pretty much ever since it came in. Uh, in 2011. So again, under Miliband, under Corbyn, and there's been a consensus around that, really. And we know, obviously, the other pledges from Keir Starmer's leadership campaign about public ownership, scrapping tuition fees, they're all gone. But even um, putting more money into Shawstart, one of the kind of legacies of new Labour, not a socialist demand particularly, but, you know, one of the things held up by um, advocates for new Labour to say, yeah, this was one of the good things they did. And it is, by the way. Um, But it's interesting because in 2015-16, when we were running the party, if you remember, in fact, at the time of Jeremy's leadership campaign in 2015, Harriet Harman started criticising tax credits and saying, well, we have to listen to the public. Maybe we can't defend them. And it wasn't until Jeremy got elected that the Labour Party actually voted against the Welfare Reform Act, which was running down tax credits. So we're actually seeing a kind of running down of even new Labour style policies, um, even the better bits of new Labour, if you like. And I think, you know, we've heard a bit about, you know, they didn't want to do anything costed, but they haven't committed to repealing the Tories voter ID laws that they voted against in Parliament, the Police Crime and Sentencing Act, which they voted against in Parliament. And I think what we've seen over recent days is that this isn't necessarily just about money. It is about that and their their fiscal rules and their caution on that. But it's, it's a wider caution. They are terrified of debate, of having to make a political argument for anything. 
In fact, I'd go so far as to say those at the very top of the party are absolutely incapable of making a political argument um, for better things, to make things better. And their solution, seemingly to me anyway, is therefore to have nothing to defend. Can't criticise us if we haven't got any policies. You know, and I, I think that's the thing. They're not trying to be contentious. They're not trying to be radical. We kind of know that. But look at the times we're in. Um, you know, they are going to inherit multiple crises on the economy, in public services, on the climate, on housing. And where is the scale of response? And the thing is, I think reality intrudes and reality is going to intrude in two ways. One is they're going to be forced to do things or be forced out of office very quickly, because, by the way, I, I think Labour is going to comfortably win the next election. The Tories, you know, the public is just fed up with the Tories. The results in Selby, the results in Somerton and Froome, at opposite ends of the country, even the result in Uxbridge, where there was a 7% swing to Labour and we came within a whisker of winning a seat we'd never won, even with the kind of missteps that Labour made in that campaign. So I do think the Tories are out, but what replaces it needs to be a lot more bold and reality has to intrude and it has to intrude in two ways. One is that we have to try and force them to be more radical in the run up to that election, but we also within the party and outside of it, working with unions and campaigns, have to build up the social pressure that means when they are in government, they are forced to act. And I think that's the key lesson of this. So we've got to have a kind of twin track strategy. And I'll, I'll stop on this point because I know there are plenty of other speakers as well. We have to think about how we organise within the party effectively. And that may mean a bit of, you know, taking a few risks here and there. But it also means building campaigns more widely outside the party as well. Thanks. Andrew, it's great to have you with us. So thank you. Um, and that was a very, very interesting and in-depth um, talk. And I'm sure there's there's been plenty of people in the chat um, who've also found it very interesting. And, and so thank you. Thank you very much to, for joining us. Um, I'm just going to take this opportunity to um, just bring in the chat a little bit. Um, so we have a new one from Malcolm saying, did I hear uh, correctly that stripping privatisation in the NHS was not allowed to be discussed? Um, and one from Liz Hull from Durham. Was there any discussion on the policy to bring back social care to the NHS uh, or under local authority control? Um, and kind of we've had a range of um, questions and comments across um, the different social medias as well as in the chat, um, including whether delegates were opposed to supporting ever higher military spending, uh, what challenges there were to Tory attacks on our right to protest, and how we are advancing the case for equality in education. So, so the speakers could bear that in mind. Um, hopefully we'll get a few answers. Um, so our next um, NPF uh, rep waiting to speak, um, who's willing to talk about Labour's stance on international development, including efforts towards debt relief for countries in the global south. And speaking to us about that is Jack Bellingham, um, NPF rep for Yorkshire and the Humber. So welcome, Jack, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Kate. Um, hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, as Kate says, I'm Jack. I'm the Yorkshire and Humber Youth Rep. I'm also a member of the NPF's um, Foreign Policy Commission. Um, I'm from Beverly and Holden, a CLP, so it's great to see a couple of our members in the, in the attendees list tonight. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to talk a bit about um, what happened on international development at the weekend. Um, I think we we can all agree that given the, the climate crisis and how bad it's getting, um, the impact of that on the global south is disproportionate compared to their contribution to climate change. We can't really forget that the Industrial Revolution began in Britain, and yet um, the, the the impact of, of um, fossil fuel emissions is so disproportionately um, impacting upon um, countries in Africa and Asia and South America. Um, and we can see now this last week how bad it's getting even in Greece. Um, so I think Britain has a responsibility um, to be contributing to international aid and to be trying to, to help countries in the global south and mitigate the impacts of that climate crisis. Um, the three areas that we were focusing on as a left group at the NPF this weekend um, were the 0.7% UN um, spending target for international development, um, an independent department for international development, because obviously um, we can all remember that the Tories scrapped that a couple of years ago, um, and then also in, um, debt, debt cancellation um, internationally for countries in the global south. Um, I think, as Andrew um, spoke about briefly a bit before, um, there's a general reticence from the leadership to try and undo sort of big um, totemic policy areas like um, repealing legislation and this kind of thing. Um, and I think that kind of conservatism showed through a bit in international development as well. 
Um, and it was very hard to kind of push um, for that explicit um, independent international development um, commitment. But um, we did manage to get um, a bit of progress on debt cancellation. Um, and this wasn't an area that had really been talked about um, before and it hadn't appeared in the in the policy um, reports. And um, because of amendments that we had submitted, um, we managed to get that wording into the into the report and to to get the party to be looking at um, exploring debt relief um, for countries in the global south, which is really positive. And I think um, it shows that even if it's a fairly modest way, um, having you know left wing voices in the room with shadow ministers can sort of push the party towards far better position. Um, it's also international development, one of these um, issues um, that isn't specifically confined to the left. It wasn't just left wing voices in the room that were arguing for these policies. And I think it really shows um, how out of touch the leadership really is with the party as a whole. Um, the fact that um, there were there were people who were broadly supportive of the leadership in all other areas, um, supporting these policies that the leadership wasn't willing to. Um, and I think we've seen this with other areas, things like Sure Start and international um an independent international development department um big um massive achievements of the last labor government um that um you know the, the more sort of moderate as they say um, wing of the party like to talk about quite a lot but even those things the leadership leadership aren't willing to commit to reinstating um i think it shows um how concerning it really is uh, sort of the current state of the of the leadership culture um but yeah i think you know, on things like international development, we can have that positive effect. Um, I also um, sort of focused a little bit on civil liberties and voter ideas. Andrew and Mish have talked about, um, and me and Mish are also pushing on asylum and asylum seekers' rights uh, and repealing the Tory legislation around that. Um, and I think that kind of, that's where we saw that instinctive sort of conservatism from the leadership again, um, sort of just this unwillingness to, to take on the big challenges of repealing Tory legislation. Um, but, you know, we, we make some we make some progress and keep moving. Um, and hopefully we can be pushing for that at conference again. Um, so, yeah, great to, great to see everyone. Thanks so much for that, Jack. That was brilliant. Um, well done on your perseverance on behalf of the rest of us. Um, so we'd like to kind of zoom out now um, and hear from Sarah Willey, the General Secretary of the Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union. Sarah's going to talk to us about the wider political situation in the light of Labour's leadership current policy stances. Um, so welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Kate. Um, as you'll all be aware, I wasn't at the NPF in Nottingham because our Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union uh, recall conference delegates took the historic step to disaffiliate back in 2021 after being involved in the uh, in Labour throughout its whole entire existence. We helped get it set up and were involved in the forerunners to the party back in 1902. Um, and this wasn't a decision that our members took lightly, but they felt that, you know, under Keir's leadership, when he sacked Andy MacDonald for arguing that Labour's manifesto should commit to a national living wage of not less than £15 an hour, which is our policy, and insisted that the New Deal for Workers um, Green Paper kept the figure they were promising at £10 an hour, that we were well away from where um, we needed our party to be at the time. And, you know, keeping that level at £10 an hour would have meant a, a massive pay cut for our members because even the government's living wage, you know, a, a government that's not for working people is forecast to hit £11 and £8 an hour next April. And it just, I think it just goes to show how short-sighted and, and lacking ambition the party is at, at the minute with um, exceptions of the people that are on the call tonight. We all know that inflation's rocketing, food prices um, even more than general inflation. And in the three months from April to June, the cost, for example, of cheese has gone up by 23.7%, milk by 21.1%, and you know, products that our members make, biscuits has gone up by 183 and bread by 17.4%. And you know, our members' wages haven't gone up that much. We published a report earlier this year called Food Workers on the Breadline, and that was based on a survey of our members who make food that's on the supermarket shelves. And 88% of those um, the respondents said that they were cutting back on heating to save money, um, which the report's authors said was having a very significant effect on their mental health and their physical health. And 63% of them told us that their income was insufficient to meet even the most basic of needs. So, you know, 
I don't know exactly what got decided at the NPF, except what I've read in the press or on social media. And I do tend to take that with a pinch of salt. But I want to know what the Labour Party are going to do for BFAW members. Um, and 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 being honest, I'm not at all reassured by what I've heard what I've heard so far. We've got members who earn a bit more than the 7,400 cap for being eligible for free school meals, but still receiving the universal credit, still finding it really hard to make ends meet. But ruling out uh, providing universal free school meals to feed hungry children is going to have a massive impact on them. We know keeping the two-child limit on universal credit will keep around 250,000 children in poverty. Um, And I get that spending promises need to be funded, but we're living in one of the top 10 richest countries in the world. I know there's a debate whether it's the fifth, whether it's the sixth. The Financial Times publishes a supplement called How to Spend It because billionaires start to run out of ideas, which is just disgraceful, isn't it? And I get that the cracking down on non-dom status, that's a good start, but it's not far enough, is it? Where are there other ideas to bring in money by taxing obscene wealth? Wealth that they're never going to spend in their lifetime, never mind the kids' lifetimes. All the while, our kids are having to starve. And apart from the row about not offering £15 an hour, the New Deal for Working People document has some really important demands in it. We need to know whether they survive the MPF and whether they'll actually make it into the manifesto because I'm hearing rumours that but want to abolish the youth rates, for example, of the minimum wage, which pushes so many young people into poverty. You know, by leaving under 18 rates in companies like McDonald's, they'll continue to exploit young people. And just because you're under 18 doesn't mean the cost of everything else, you know, is cheaper. So why should you be paid a cheaper wage? The commitment to offering day one rights to all workers is being questioned, I'm hearing. And this would definitely be a green light for employees in the food sector to carry on exploiting agency workers, many of them migrant workers, and that will lead further to a race to the bottom in paying conditions. I'm hearing they've gone quiet on the importance of restoring sectoral collective bargaining or repealing anti-union legislation beyond the Trade Union Act. Will they even ban zero-hours contracts, You know, which is something that our union has campaigned passionately about for years? This is not just a matter for Labour members. If Labour's going to form the next government and, and, you know, the polls are saying they might just do that, the whole Labour movement needs answers to these questions. And it looks to me like Starmer expects to win the election, not by offering anything positive to speak of, but just because people want to see the back of the Tories. And that's a really risky strategy. You don't give people anything to vote for or promise more of the same. They'll just stay at home or find somewhere else to go and we'll be guaranteed another Tory government. We need and we deserve so much better than what's on offer from either front bench at the minute. So whether you're inside the Labour Party or outside, collectively together, we've got to build pressure for a radical alternative that delivers for our members, our communities um, and our generations to come. I'll leave it there. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Sarah. That was fabulous as ever. Um, and I just want to echo um, everything you said there and, and to also remind people, if you um, haven't already, join a trade union. It's easily one of the most important things you can do. And so, yeah, so last but not least, uh, discussing his take on the NPF and what this means for the future of the left is none other than the former Shadow Chancellor and leading left MP, John McDonnell. And um, we're delighted to have John film a video on the importance of public ownership ahead of conference. And that's a demand which is so popular and so urgent, given the scandals in our water and energy. That's just not going away. So it's lovely to see you. And uh, thanks for joining me, John. Thanks. Thanks thanks for inviting me along. Can I just say thanks to all those who participate in the MPF from the left and all those who have given the report backs tonight. I know it's been it's been tough for them and it's been in some ways quite hard having to go through that experience and see so many promises dropped from programs but so thank you for that i want to i want to say basically need to have a, uh, an understanding of, of what happened at the weekend a sort of deeper understanding of its implications um so i want to i want to speak more broadly if that's okay um the labor party was founded on compassion and hope and the compassion was for those whose lives and life chances are curtailed by the economic and 
political system that dominates our lives. And the hope was that change can be brought about um, that can transform our lives and our futures. Labour's compassion and hope, though, has always been grounded on practical programmes of policies that give people confidence that change can be brought about. And it's those policies and the programmes that are welded together to form the, the vision of the society we want to create. And it inspires people. And it's not just inspiring to support us, but inspiring people to participate in bringing about that change. That's been our traditional role. And I, I, I don't like saying this. I, don't, I never thought I would be saying this, but what we saw at the weekend was sort of compassion, to be honest, in limited supply, especially when it came to the dismissal of cause for the scrapping of the brutal two-child limit, which has forced so many children into poverty. And I actually do think there was a sort of a curtailment of hope hope of transformative change. And the best example of that actually was the watering down of the restoration of basic trade union rights. The New Deal for Workers that was designed by the issue of employment rights that we've endorsed the last two manifestos and that Keir Starmer has endorsed on a number of occasions. I think it's possibly the most transformative element of a future labour programme. Uh, and also one more transformative than we've seen in decades, because what it does, it lays the foundations of the, what Tony Bell used to describe as the irreversible shift in the balance of wealth and power in favour of working people. And we've been arguing for that since the 80s. Um, my view is like others, even though the Labour leadership seems sort of intent on reducing almost on a daily basis the positive policy reasons for voting for Labour, I think the unpopularity of the Tories means that it's almost inevitable we'll see a Labour government elected in about 14 months' time. We can't be sure of its majority. I agree with everyone on that. Um, but the most cephalogical feature of the recent by-elections and the polls is the Tory vote staying at home, the Tory vote abstaining virtually. And that's why I think we'll get a, a majority Labour government. My fear is this. Um, unless that incoming Labour government starts immediately on a large-scale transformative programme that shows that traditional labour compassion and hope, I think disillusionment could set in fairly quickly. And the beneficiaries of that won't just be the Tories, but I actually do think the most right-wing elements of the Tory party, but beyond that, into the far right, um, beyond the Tories. And if we want an example of that, we just have to look across Europe to see, to see what the result is when there are governments that don't exhibit sufficiently the compassion and hope and when those that compassion and hope is restricted. The political threat potentially emerging in 2026, I think, needs to be understood in, the, in that context of the extremely worrying rise of the far right across Europe. In Germany, the AfD, in France, Marie Le Pen's National Front, in Greece, the recent rise and takeover by the right and the far right. In Italy, a fascist government under Maloney, the FDI. And in Spain, you know, it just shows you how serious things are when the threat from the right is we're breathing a collective sigh of relief that the right and the fascist right, although they won the greatest number of seats, didn't have an overall majority. But they still had immense support that shift to the right I think is really dangerous right the way across Europe and we've got to face up to that if we have a Labour government that disillusions people in their early years so my view we need to talk about how we counter that sort of dystopian possibility and I think it's the left this sounds ironic but it's true the left has to mobilize to save the Labour government incoming Labour government from itself almost now, there's been lots of talks about missions, but I think this is the left's mission. And how do we do it? Well, I think we others have voiced this. We maximise the mobilising link between all those different civil society organisations and campaigns that are campaigning issue by issue for change. And whether it's a single issue campaign, like the campaign for free school meals or child poverty programmes or tax justice, or for a wealth tax or financial transaction tax on the city, 
or trade union rights from day one or the 15 pounds an hour or more rapid climate change program to tackle the climate crisis. There's a multiplicity of those individual campaigns now we've got to get behind. They're not necessarily Labour Party campaigns, but all of them are capable of creating, I think, an unstoppable demand for change and a climate political opinion supporting change that sort of permeates our society that in the end, no government or uh, no administration can ignore and expect to survive. The stages of that, we need to look at our, the stages of potential influence. I think there are four key stages now. One is obviously now we're past the MPF, we're rolling into party conference. It's inevitable the conference will be stage managed, but it still provides opportunities on the floor of conference and the fringe to demonstrate that a progressive force still exists in our movement, raising those issues of those individual campaigns overall. The second is the run-up to the Clause 5 meeting where the unions, the NEC, and the shadow front page come together to determine the manifesto. So we've got to maximise support upon the participants within that Clause 5 meeting that will take place next year that will go line by line through the new manifesto. That gives us the opportunity, again, of raising and mobilising across the movement on the demands that we put. The third, and this is post-election, the third is how we shape and influence the first King's speech that the Labour, incoming Labour government will put forward. And what we should be doing is looking up drafting our own King's speech at the moment and handing it over to the Labour front bench. This is what a, a real Labour King's speech would be after the next election, building popular support for it. And then the fourth element, which not many people talk about really, but I think is possibly the most significant period. It's after the first year of a Labour administration, when exactly as Andrew Fisher said, when the real world starts intruding, the issues have not gone away. There's still the financial pressures. There's still trade union campaign for decent wage rights. There's still people campaigning for proper investment in our public services. It's when those issues are facing our societies, our society has not gone away. And actually, unfortunately, I think as well, when there's been a lack of serious, effective action by the Labour government on those issues, is begin to cause frustration. And at that stage, we have to be ready and campaigning for a radical turn to save Labour from itself and to prevent the build-up of a dangerous level of disillusionment which will drive people to the right, and I mean the far right as well. So I think that's our mission over the next three years, bluntly. We need to recognise the role we have to play, move past, to a certain extent, or it's not moaning, it's almost just the, the expressions of regret that we have at the moment of the current situation. Move past that and discussing how bad things are in the party, but start the creative gearing up and the gathering of the forces on those individual campaigns that we can then put together an overall climate of opinion that actually will dominate the political agenda over the next three years, and particularly when Labour goes into government. And I think that's I think that's when the left becomes serious players once again in shaping the future, not just of the Labour Party, but of the future of our country. It's a difficult period at the moment. But for those people who attended the MPF, those marginal gains that they they obtained, they secured, they might seem insignificant to others, but actually they were major gains given the climate that we're in. Imagine what it's like when Labour in government and people are saying, well, where is the investment in the NHS? What's happening with our schools, our local schools budget? What's happening about rights at work when I go into work and they're threatening me with another low, below inflation wage rise? Imagine the, the, really the potential that there is at that stage for people to start looking for a more transformative programme and the building up of a cumulative alliance to demand that programme is introduced by a Labour government. That's the sort of timescale we've got to work on. And I think they're the activities, as everyone has displayed today, that we need to get engaged upon. And it is about solid campaigning on the ground, winning the argument, mobilising people, creatively taking action. And in that way, I think 
there's a real potential, as I say, that can almost save the next Labour government from itself. Solidarity. Thank you, John, and, and thanks for coming along. Um, and both for that speech and for the work you're doing with other socialist campaign group Labour MPs, um, stand up for socialism for all of us in Parliament. I just want to point out, if you can, um, please donate to the cost of hosting this call in the link provided in the chat below. Um, I want to end by saying, although the weekend was largely disappointing, we shouldn't lose heart. We need to take all of these campaigns to Labour Conference and to the Women's Conference and work from what we've heard tonight. The truth is that from their internal purges to the refusal to offer real change from the Tories broken Britain, this leadership is not living up to its word and it's losing friends. What's more, we know that from child poverty to public services to climate breakdown, only the left has answers to the crises facing us. We're going to keep campaigning for them in the run-up to the party conference while working to build our strength through political education and training programmes. We all know it's tough right now, but the truth is that there's a lot in the future to look forward to and the crucial work needs to be done. They never said it would be easy, comrades, and it's not called to struggle for nothing. But looking around the world today, the fight is more urgent than ever. So, again, I just want to thank you all for coming and to all the speakers for their excellent contributions and to the people that helped facilitate this call. Um, I think it's very important that we kind of keep aware um, of everything going on in the party through formats such as this. Um, so thank you to everybody um, for the excellent contributions again and solidarity.